got two names because I'm wanted by the law. <laughs> Spiritual name is H.G. Uh, Goswami. I was born with the name Howard. And uh, I was born in Los Angeles. And uh, I did my undergraduate work at uh, Berkeley and UCLA. I made for uh, world religions. And then I uh, did a doctorate at Harvard in Sanskrit and Indian studies, and I've taught in different universities, like the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, University of Florida, and uh, lectured all over. It caused trouble in other ways as well. So, and I more or less began a, a program called Krishna West, which the idea being to make the, uh, <coughs> the ancient spiritual wisdom uh, of South Asia, of India, the philosophy that was behind the whole yoga thing and all that, make that easily available for people in the Western world, uh, the knowledge and practice without having to jump through ethnic hoops. And uh, so I'm really happy to see you all here today. It's a, it's a real pleasure for me, seriously. I'm not supposed to speak, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Perhaps I could say a few words on where this all comes from, and, uh, and then I'd, I'd be really happy to field any questions you may have. No refunds. <laughs> so, where this all comes from? Um, there was a great civilization in what it, in South Asia. Uh, now it's called India, Pakistan, and uh, Bangladesh, and so on. But originally, it was simply one great culture area. And um, we have ancient Sanskrit texts that go back many thousands of years. Scholars don't really know how old they are, but they pretend they do. Uh, but actually, they don't. And um, to the oldest being the Rig Veda. The word Veda means knowledge from the Sanskrit root wit, from which we have the English wit, intelligence. But it means to know. It's also the source of German wissen, which means to know, and English words like uh, vision and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So all those uh, words actually in any different languages are written in Sanskrit, Veda, or knowledge, or seeing. So um, the oldest history of this great civilization uh, goes beyond the historiographical horizon. In other words, we don't really, we, all we have is these sacred texts and there's no, really no other source of knowledge other than archaeology. And as my professor at Harvard used to say, pots don't speak. And so archaeology has some limitations. So, uh, in a sense, this civilization comes within the historical horizon about um, approximately 23, 2400 years ago. Because a Greek ambassador named Monosthenes uh, went to the royal court at Pataliputra, which is now the Indian city of Patna in northeastern India, and he wrote a best-selling book in Greek called Indica, which means about India. And so he described a civilization which is very impressive, and the reason I'm mentioning all this is because it's the source, in a sense, that civilization of what we're doing here. Um, first of all, it was a civilization which uh, did not 
believe or did not accept religious fanaticism. And this is actually typical of the entire Indo-European civilization. If you look at, so to speak, pagan Europe, Greco, the Greco-Roman world also, they, um, they had a, an explicit understanding in which was sort of a syncretism. The idea being, as stated in the Rig Veda, the oldest Sanskrit literature, perhaps the oldest book in any language, that there's one ultimate truth, there's one divine truth, and different people call it by different names. And uh, if you know anything about Alexander, he had a project called the One World Project, where, because basically he united what was then Western, Western world, Greece anyway, and then the Persian Empire extending all the way to the border of India. And he had the idea that there's one truth and that we sh everyone should unite and form one great human civilization based on a common understanding of the ultimate spiritual basis of things. Uh, Alexander, he had, you know, sometimes he thought about things. So, and the, and the Romans very much had this idea. The Romans very much believed in religious syncretism, which was not to, let's say, lose the principles of any specific spiritual tradition, but rather the understanding, the liberal understanding that ultimately there's one absolute truth that's called by different names, and therefore people can get along and so on. And, uh, you don't really find in the Greco-Roman world religious wars. The Romans, although they really enjoyed declaring war on other people, but they didn't do so. They weren't trying to bring Jupiter uh, to their neighbors. They were so you had this um, religious syncretism, you could call it, and just use it, a rough term. Did you have a question? Yes. Yeah, so then, why did the Romans persecute the Jews? Oh, the Jews. Uh, that was actually a political problem. I'm not justifying the Roman destruction of the Second Temple or anything like that, but from the Roman point of view, they, there was a political insurrection. And actually, before that political insurrection, there's a system whereby the emperor was regularly sending donations to the Temple of Jerusalem uh, in order to have uh, sacrifice done in the Jewish Temple in the name of the emperor. The Roman attitude toward religion was basically that there are many channels to divine power, and they collected power. So they act, and so, um, for example, if you, the the emperor, well, I'm sorry, sorry, the um, the king of Israel, basically at the time that Jesus was born, was Herod, also called Herod the Great. Herod actually had a very tight relationship with Augustus Caesar. And uh, the problem he had after that with his sons and, and the, the Roman decision to impose direct Roman rules from Pontius Pilate and everything kind of went downhill after that. But during the time of Herod the Great, he was a client king of Rome. Rome preferred to not get into messy situations in faraway countries mm -hmm. and just have a local king that knew his own people and could send taxes in. In fact, uh, I, I spent actually uh, two months last year, last summer, in Caesarea, or Caesarea, this uh, city built by Herod, and he named it in honor of the Roman Emperor. And uh, anyway, built a deep water harbor, which is the equivalent back then of the Intercontinental Airport. And, and so it was really the situation deteriorated and, and ultimately <coughs> a political problem. So anyway, um, so in India, I haven't planned this, in India also you had religious freedom. I mean, an astonishing amount of religious freedom. 
you know about the Catholic-Protestant wars and, and basically all kinds of religious wars uh, fought, let, let's say, I mean, the Middle Eastern concept was kind of my God can beat up your God. But if you look at um, the rise of Buddhism, for example, in India, it's very remarkable because uh, Buddha, of course, is a Sanskrit word. It means the awakened one, the knowing one. And um, the fact that you could have this Vedic civilization based on this ancient Sanskrit literature of the Vedas, and then you get this heterodox tradition, Buddhism, which basically <coughs> says that the Vedas are all nonsense and practically everything the Vedas teach is wrong, and you really need to become a Buddhist. And they didn't find any wars over this. I mean, it, everyone knew the rules of the game. That there's freedom of speech, there's freedom of religion, and so you're welcome to go and preach and, and, and make your case, and try to win the hearts and minds of the people. This was remarkable. And Jainism. Jainism now is sort of a very small religion in terms of number of people, but 2,000 years ago it was a real contender. It actually had a lot of followers and even controlled some kingdoms in South Asia. And yet, they didn't find any wars over this. There, there was freedom. There was even freedom of speech. For example, if you think of the, let's say, European monarchy, you know, off with their heads and all that, sort of satirized and Alice in Wonderland. Um, <coughs> remarkably, if you look at very ancient literature like Mahabharata, which gives it sort of a picture, it's like an ancient sacred history of South Asia, and people could go out into the town square and just criticize the king. Like, they thought the king was really doing a bad job. You could just go out in public and say, the king's a jerk. You know, the king's this, the king's that. And the king... It's interesting how the kings respond to this. We know how they respond in Europe. And in, in, in this ancient text from India, the kings say, we better do a better job or the people are going to, you know, get rid of us. And so, there's freedom of speech. There's freedom of religion. Also, but apart from that, Megosthenes, this Greek ambassador, said that India was the only country he had seen where there was no slavery. He said that you could basically walk from one end of the subcontinent to the other with no fear for your property or life, because there was almost no crime. He said that there were, you know, there were uh, ministers of the government that just went around the country making sure that foreigners were not mistreated, were not cheated. There were animal hospitals, there were animal rights. Uh, they patronized the arts. People that had artistic talent didn't have to worry about their income. And so it, 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 it was a very interesting um, civilization. Is this civilization which came up with this yoga thing? Which, of course, back then, the word yoga uh, is from an Indo-European root, yuj, which means to connect and link. So yoga means linking yourself to the higher truth. And we still have linguistic well, we call it cognates. In English, uh, from this ancient root, yuge, <coughs> yoga, words like yoke, like to yoke two things together, connect them, or conjugal, intimate connection. And so that's the Indo-European root, yuge, in which you get the word yoga. And the original purpose of yoga was to connect to the absolute truth, to connect to God. In fact, there was one uh, very famous religion professor in the 20th century named Eliade, who taught at the University of Chicago, and uh, he pointed out that this is really the first depth psychology in, the, in, in human history. Going very, very deeply into human psychology, kind of a very elaborate version of what Descartes did 
uh, sort of a somewhat small way in the 17th century, his meditations, just trying to explore consciousness itself. So, um, I, I taught actually history of Indian religion at the University of Florida. I, I made this point that India probably has the greatest variety of religious paths in the world for three reasons. <coughs> Number one, uh, the land is very fertile. And up until very recently, uh, human prosperity, human survival depended on agriculture. And India, if you just sort of Google India, you know, river map, you'll see that <coughs> India has the, by far, the most efficient system of natural irrigation in the world. Because there are rivers everywhere. And there's fertile land everywhere, except the tar desert. But, um, so, when you have a lot of land, and it's very fertile, and there's natural irrigation everywhere, you get a lot of people. So there was always, comparatively speaking, I mean, what a lot of people meant varies throughout history. But there were a lot of people there, and they had religious freedom. So, for example, to give an example, after Jesus, uh, Jesus impressed a lot of people, and so there were many, many different Jesus movements uh, who had different interpretations of Jesus. Some of these different interpretations survived the New Testament, which, as any scholar will tell you, actually you find different uh, theologies, although they're, you know, they're connected. But, but actually the Jesus movement, or the Jesus movements originally, were much more diverse. It was a wide variety. And they were sort of homogenized uh, by violent force. When the emperor um, Constantine decided that, let's be Christian, um, then he didn't, you know, he wanted everything organized, so basically they held councils, like the Council of Nicaea, and everyone was required to think of Jesus in a particular way. And probably most of the different ways people thought about Jesus were uh, condemned as heresies, and some of them survive and some of them don't. I'm saying this because if you look at India, we have a situation where they never condemned heresies. I mean, they might be condemned philosophically in open debates, but never militarily. And so therefore in India you have this full flowering of approaches to spirituality. And of course, two of the major world religions were born there, uh, Buddhism and now called Hinduism. So you have a, uh, <clears throat> geographically you have a land, South Asia, which is very rich for agriculture. People were rich. Oh my God, that's actually not going It's Bob. My Baroque ringtone. Can you keep that and just maybe turn the, or actually I can. Oh, it's your I don't know. When I get home, I get home. So, anyway, um, so you have a lot of people living there. You have freedom, and you have a very intellectually sophisticated culture. Uh, there's actually only two places in the world where independent. Um, I'll get you in a there's only two places in the world where independent philosophical traditions arose, and they are India and Europe. And when I say philosophical tradition, I mean in the full sense where you get systematic philosophy, not merely wisdom, but you find wisdom all over the world. But in terms of a systematic, where's our philosophy major? Yeah. 
So in terms of okay. So in terms of systematic philosophy, categorical, where you get major categories of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, uh, ethics, and, and, and so on and so forth. For example, the great uh, Islamic civilization, which reached its height maybe about a thousand years ago, and they really they just rediscovered Greek philosophy and then you know worked on Greek philosophy. In terms of China, when Buddhism went east from India to China, uh, this very sophisticated intellectual tradition went with it. I remember I, I was speaking at one university in Nashville, and I was speaking to a professor who was a specialist in that, and, and he agreed that if you look at, there's a lot of wisdom in China. I mean, there, there's certainly wisdom, but in terms of systematic philosophy, it actually came with Buddhism, Buddhism libraries. And uh, so it's really, so, so you have this very sophisticated intellectual tradition in India, and there's freedom. There's freedom of speech, there's philosophical freedom, there's religious freedom, and there's a very deep concern with spirituality. In fact, uh, in South Asia, going back very, very far, there's a conviction that actually God came to the world there. And it's very interesting because, in his, and then you have the Bhagavad Gita, which, and the, the word Bhagavad Gita means the song of God. So, some people say, you know, there's so many religions in the world, and they all, you know, claim to be the only way, and they all contradict each other, so therefore none of them can be true, because they all cancel each other out. People that say this generally have not seriously studied world religions. Because if you actually study world religions, what you find is there's a few basic concepts. Such as, I mean, you could start, let's say there, there's, uh, of course, the animistic tradition, where they kind of seen spirits in nature. And this kind of develops intellectually with polytheism, which goes into monotheism. And, and monotheism can either go into the monistic side, where it's all one, or it can go into the theistic type of monism in the sense that everything is one, but under a supreme god. There's pantheism, people <coughs> Spinoza, where the universe is God. And that's kind of it. I mean, everything's kind of a riff, you know, like, like a variation on these. And, and, and so the... Yes, I'm where, sorry. Where does Buddhism fall inside of that system that you've set up there? Okay, I'll just touch upon that quickly. Thank you. Um, Buddhism is very interesting. Um... Buddhism is, uh, first of all, we have to talk about Buddhisms. Very inter interestingly, uh, if you look at early Buddhism, early Buddhism, and the first great councils, because just as Constantine kind of adopted Christianity, that was, in a sense, you know, terminated it as what it was. So in the same way, um, there was another great emperor in South Asia, Ashoka, who adopted Buddhism. But if you look at the first great councils of Christianity, the first great councils of Buddhism, they're very different. Because the first councils, like, like the famous Council of Nicaea, of Christianity were really all about theology. They were arguing about theology. Like someone came up with the Trinity Doctrine, which no one liked at first, but somehow eventually got established. And um, Whereas the first great Buddhist councils were not about philosophy or, or metaphysics. They were about practice, like can a, can a Buddhist monk eat twice a day or once a day, or you know how many vegetables or how many times you have to pray every day. 
they're all about practice. And, and one of the reasons that the first Buddhist councils were not about philosophy or theology or metaphysics in any way is because Buddha himself refused to talk about it. There, there's, a very famous, there's a very famous Buddhist story where they kept telling him, come on, Buddha, you know, talk about metaphysics. Like, is there a soul, is there a God? Or not? And he, he gave this example, the arrow, that if you're shot with an arrow, first you just try to get the arrow out and worry about who shot it and all that. Although I'd probably worry about both at the same time. I'd probably, <laughs> I really want to know who shot it and try to get it out. But anyway, uh... So if you look at early Buddhism, I mean, they um, take the second sermon by the Buddha. I mean, the first sermon comes like the grand opening of Buddhism in the Deer Park. And um, then sermon number two, this is like sermon number two. This is, we're right at the beginning. And it's historically been known as the sermon on the non-existence of the soul. And the most interesting thing about this sermon is Buddha doesn't say there's no soul. <laughs> If you actually read it, because I, I read, it's only two paragraphs, and I used to read it to my classes. And what he does is, what, what's, what's called in philosophy or, or uh, metaphysics, the via negativa, the negative way, where you kind of say, it's not this, it's not that, it's not the other thing, and sort of what's left. Is so, in that second sermon on the non-existence of the soul, Buddha does what you already found in the Upanishads. Upanishads are these um, sort of mystical, philosophical, theological texts. It's a genre of texts, very ancient texts in Sanskrit that are part of the Vedas, the Vedic corpus. So they also have the system where you see, you go down the list. For example, is my gross physical body, I don't mean that I'm particularly gross, but I mean the sense of, you know, physical. Is my physical <coughs> body the eternal soul? And no way. No way, my physical body is the eternal soul. What about my changing mind, my tempestuous mind? Is that the eternal soul? Nope. And what about my reasoning faculty? Is that itself the eternal soul? That's not the soul. So you go down the checklist and you conclude, well, none of these are the eternal soul. The end. You know, that's all folks. The Buddha did also say in a different discourse that all phenomena have no root whatsoever, though. Um... All phenomena, yeah, but phenomena means physical things, material things. That's what the word phenomena means. Not in Buddhism. Uh, but, the, but first of all, we have to understand there are Buddhisms. That's true. Yeah, in fact, there's a whole bunch of them. Because in South Asia in general, because there was intellectual freedom, and because Buddha didn't stipulate this is our metaphysics, therefore it went all over the place. Yeah, to give an example, one group that I found fascinating, one early, very early Buddhist group in North India, which was very prominent in its time, was the Pugalabhadis. <coughs> the Pugalabhadis were a group that reasoned, they were Buddhists, very early Buddhists and influential, that said that, hey, hey everybody, we believe in karma. So if there's no soul, who gets the karma? And in other words, they also said, if, if there's ultimately no soul, and no persisting person, then there's no me to be morally responsible for what I do. And they said that makes no sense because we are morally responsible and that's why we get karma. If you weren't, and who gets the karma if there's no person? Also, the most popular Buddhist literature back then, and even today you could say the Jataka literature, 
which is all these stories about the past lives of the Buddha, how he got to be the Buddha. You know, he was a ship captain, he was this, he was that, he did this good deed, that good deed, and gradually kept getting promoted. So if there's no person different from the body, no soul, how can you have Buddha, the same person, moving through uh, all these different lives? In fact, I remember when I, when I taught you know, the history of, of South, South Asian religion, I taught all Buddhism, and I used this textbook. I was actually very nice. I only used cheap textbooks. They were very good textbooks, <laughs> but I thought, that was like idiotic to give some of these expensive textbooks. So, this nice little book from Oxford, uh, Oxford Press, and uh, the author, a lady, I forget her name, who wrote this book, she actually said at the beginning that if we have to point out some universal feature or universal belief of all the many different forms of Buddhism, it would be, among other things, that there is some kind of conscious person, conscious self, that transcends the death of the body. So, um, of course, you've got Mahayana Buddhism. Basically, the way you can understand this, to give sort of a rocket science uh, analogy here, uh, Buddhism, of course, was born in India. And it, it had a lot of influence. It uh, won't go into all the historical circumstances, but it, it, it was born in India. And uh, it, it rejected, Buddhism rejected many of the main features of the Vedic civilization in which it was born. And yet, it never really escaped the gravitational field of that Vedic culture. So that, even though in the beginning, uh, they were kind of like, you know, the, like 7-Up used to advertise it were the Uncola or something. It was like the Unveda. And they rejected all these things, but then they started taking all of them back because in the, in the open marketplace of spiritualities and religious paths and so on, uh, they had to compete. So imagine, just imagine you're in some South Indian, I mean, Indian, South Asian village, maybe like 2,000 years ago, and so there's the, you know, the Vaishnava preacher, the one who's trying to get you to accept Krishna. There's the Buddhist preacher, and a lot of other people, you know, competing for the hearts and minds of the people. And let's say you live in the village, and let's say someone you love very much passed away. And so the Buddhist teacher says, well, don't worry about it, because your mother actually didn't even exist. I mean, you have no mother, she's not your mother. And and then the let's say the Vaishnava preacher says, well actually yeah, your mother was a really good person and she's with God and she's happy and so there were these oh you know free market forces and, and, and so Buddhism ended up taking back most of the stuff it rejected. So by the time you get to Mahayana Buddhism, which is now eighty five percent of living Buddhists. You know, there's heaven, paradise, there, there are bodhisattvas, basically <coughs> saviors, who sort of forsake their own stay in paradise to come back and help us. And in fact, Pure Land Buddhism, which is, was the most successful form of Buddhism in Japan, was often compared to Protestant Reformation. And like the Lotus Sutra. So, anyway, that's all Buddhism. But, um, and then what... But I guess that's not. Is that enough? I mean, yes and no. There are more questions I could ask, but it's not very time efficient. So. <laughs>
Okay, yeah, well, later we'll be talking about that. So I forget what millennium we were in. <laughs> anyway, moving right along through time. So, so the claim, oh, I remember, actually, amazing, at my age, I actually remember what I was talking about. So, um, so if you look at all these religions and they all contradict each other, not really. Not really, because, again, uh, if all you knew about religion was, well, let's say like, like, like Alexander. I mean, you have this, you have this very powerful Greco-Roman belief in, in religious syncretism. There's one truth, and that's just called by different names, and people should unite. Alexander believed that, the Romans believed that. And, um, and you have the same idea in India. That's the same truth, just called by different names. And so in this Indo-European civilization, people felt that way. And, uh, so the claim, the specific claim made in this Vedic civilization um, that God came to this world. And, and when, when God comes to the world, they have a word for it in Sanskrit, which is avatar. The word ava, well, the word avatar, ava, in Sanskrit is a prefix, which means downward. And tara means crossing. So avatara obviously refers to a, <coughs> a guy on some other planet that fights against greedy multi-planetary corporations. No, but the word avatara actually, uh, what is it, James Cameron? Uh, he actually made the avatar blue because of Krishna, because, you know, Krishna. Mm. So, and that's why I put the thing on there for it also. Claus is a Christian. So, <laughs> so, so, the, so, so the idea is that when a divine figure or person crosses down from the eternal spiritual realm down to this material realm, literally crossing down, that's what the word avatar means. And so, if you look at the use of this word in, in this Vedic civilization, it was really used almost always to describe Krishna or Vishnu, which is just another name, different appearances. It's interesting because in India, uh, they had, of course, different competing theisms, you could say, like the Supreme as Shiva or the Supreme as the goddess Shakti or... Vishnu or Krishna, and yet the notion of the avatar of, uh, of the Lord actually coming to this world really centered on the Krishna tradition and the Vishnu tradition. And um, so the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of God, the idea that God comes to this world and, and speaks to us in a rational, non-fanatical, reasonable way, and there's a text that survives of his speaking, which is called Bhagavad Gita. It's really a claim which is not made by other major world religions. In Islam, you have the notion of God speaking through the angel Gabriel to the prophet. In Judaism, of course, you have different historical periods. In the, you say in the Old Testament, there's an early period where God speaks to people. God speaks, of course, to Adam and Eve and to Noah. And then even you have God speaking to Abraham, instructing him. God speaking to Isaiah, to Isaiah's wife, Rebekah. So you have this sort of this uh, 
primeval period in Old Testament history where there's like this family relationship with God. There's this intimacy. And then at a certain point, that connection with God ends and God starts speaking, let's say, a little less intimately through prophets. And prophets claim that God is speaking through them. And it's not exactly, it's not the same intimate thing like just talking directly to God. So the notion of God coming to the world and actually living a life on the earth. In Christianity, of course, you have the Son of God, the claiming to the Son of God. I don't want to get into the whole Trinity doctrine and Jesus is fully man, fully God, but I'll just say that no one, including Jesus, or no one that ever actually knew Jesus, actually lived with him, actually talked to him personally, ever claimed that he was God. Um, they basically said that he was the Son of God. So, so this claim that um, that God can't come, the Father or the Mother, because the Mother of Jesus Christian refers to himself as the Father and the Mother of the universe. The idea that God comes to this world, lives an exemplary human life, teaches, <coughs> speaks philosophy rationally, and then ascends again, it's sort of a unique claim which is found in this Vedic civilization, and specifically in the case of Krishna speaking Bhagavad Gita. So it's not a claim which you find elsewhere. And it's not a sectarian claim. So, so that's, uh, that's our little historical account. Um, so why are we doing this program here? Apart from the obvious financialist interest we have. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No one ever got rich doing this. So, um, the world obviously is in need of re-spiritualizing. I mean, I don't want to, on the eve of a major election, I don't want to descend into that topic, but um, I think what we're seeing, what's really frightening is that, as one writer put it, how fragile civilization is. Because I know, you know, in my life, I saw all these movements, which I also participated in, such as civil rights movement, and I was like right in the middle of everything in Berkeley, all these, you know, anti-Vietnam War and all these things. And so what we saw <coughs> is, let's say, almost you could say the last 50 years of the 20th century, this tendency toward civilizing, I mean, civilizing our culture. And obviously it's a jagged line, there's ups and downs and all kinds of contradictions and counterexamples. I mean, we know that you know, history is messy. But at the same time, there's a general tendency toward civilizing. I mean, the, the culture becoming more civilized, becoming more tolerant. Attitudes toward uh, you know, people of different races, people of different ethnicities, seem to be improving. There's always a long way to go, but, it's, but if you compare it to where it's coming from, things seem to really be moving forward. And now we're finding is that um, how fragile it is that, that actually, before our eyes, we can see things appear to really, you know, go down again in terms of uh, people feeling that it's okay to say anything about anyone. I'm from L.A. and um, I can't help noticing the hypocrisy of Hollywood. Because Hollywood is famous for being uh, sort of flaming liberals. And yet, the, the role of modern cinema 
in really vulgarizing life and sort of making it okay to be vulgar, to be narcissistic, to be just kind of violent. Like, like there's a movie out now, for example, uh, Jack Reacher, I think, you know, the sequel to Jack Reacher, in which he's a guy who's a former kind of special ops military guy, and he goes around where he finds injustice, he just delivers justice that involves beating people up, killing people, whatever, and doesn't care what the law is, doesn't care what the rules are, he just delivers justice. Tom Cruise. <laughs> so, um, and, and it was so popular, that, so this message that, you know, if you think something's right, you can just kick anybody's you-know-what and, and, and make it right, and you can deliver justice outside the law, and it's, it's really cool to be vulgar, it's really cool to be obscene, and never commit the mistake of completing one entire English sentence about Hollywood. <laughs> and um, so I think Hollywood has played a, a, a very powerful role in vulgarizing, barbarizing. And, and then when they see the results, you get a whole bunch of vulgar, barbaric people that appear to vote in crazy ways, then they're all, you know, like, where did that come from? And they feel like they're victims of something. So... Anyway, suffice it to say, I think there's a real need for a spiritual renaissance. And obviously it has to be non-fanatical. It can't be sectarian. It can't be that this is the true religion. Everybody else's religion is false. We have the living God. We have a dead God. I mean, that we don't want to go back to the Middle Ages. So what's really needed is a spiritual renaissance. <coughs> and so, I mean, if those words, like how could, how could those two words be used? Is that an oxymoron spiritual science. Uh, not really. If I could just very briefly, then I don't really have time for more questions, but if you look at the historical relationship between religion and science, going back to the earliest record we have of Western civilization, interestingly, up to around, um, well, up to precisely the Protestant Reformation, uh, science and religion were just seen as two branches of the same enterprise, like we're trying to get knowledge. And part of reality is physical, and part of reality is metaphysical. Those were Aristotle's words. And it's very easy to prove that that's true, because if you look at America, or most other modern countries, uh, our deepest, our, our most deeply held values that, that actually determine our political system, our justice system, and are, are completely metaphysical, not physical. For example, here, here's, a, here's a great example, equality. The fact that we're all equal goes against every conceivable empirical test. I mean, did all of you get exactly the same scores on your SAT or on your GRE or can everyone in this room run at exactly the same speed? Is everyone here exactly equally musical? Is everyone in this room, does everyone in this room have exactly the same ability in mathematics? Emotional IQ? We I mean, can go on and on and on. Every conceivable empirical test will tell us that we're not equal. And yet, we disregard all empirical science and we create a political system based 
completely metaphysical assumption that we're all equal. So therefore, if you say reality is just material and physical and empirical, then you've got to throw out equality, you've got to throw out democracy, forget justice, forget lots of things. Because they're all metaphysical. Yes. You also have to throw out the creation of the physical universe. Because yeah. everything that's physical Because it creates this physical. Right, right. <laughs> that's a very good point. Actually, Thomas Jefferson was very bright. One time Kennedy, when he was president, said that uh, he hosted a dinner of all these Nobel laureates. He said this was the greatest gathering of intelligence at a White House dinner since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so, and so Jefferson, if you look at the uh, DOI, Declaration of Independence, because he knew his philosophy. He knew, anyone here heard of, um, oh my God, oh my God, Hume, David Hume, a Scottish philosopher. Yeah, so Hume, who was you know, the great skeptic, I, I think the real point for me that Hume made, which, which, which we is that you can't derive a metaphysical truth from a physical truth. Let's say, for example, someone does something which is obviously evil, like, say, attacking a child, you know, harming or killing an innocent child. There's no controversy there. And, and you know, just to be, uh, uh, you know, diligent here in terms of academic philosophy, and there are no extenuating circumstances, not like by killing that child you know, the killer saved the lives of 20 million innocent people. And there are no extenuating circumstances, just wanton violence against a completely innocent person. Hume's point is that if you empirically study that act, I mean, you can study it from the point of view of, you know, what happened, surveillance cameras, everything, psychology, physiology, nowhere in your empirical study will you find injustice or evil, or wrong, because they're, they're metaphysical. There's, no, there's, not, there's, not, there's not a metaphysical object, there's not a physical object which is injustice. There's no such thing. It's a value, <coughs> and values are, are, are metaphysical. To use Aristotle's term, they're beyond the physical. So what's really important to us, all the things that we would give our life for, like to save our families, or save other innocent people, or for justice, or freedom. Freedom is metaphysical. Or as a value, as a state of being, it's just a state of being, but as a value, it's metaphysical. So therefore, if you think that justice is real, if you think equality is real, if you think that freedom actually has objective value, that means you live in a universe which is bidimensional. You live in a universe which is both physical and metaphysical. And therefore, a priori, by definition, no empirical explanation of the universe can never be a complete explanation. It's just logic. And therefore, um, there has to be... So what would it look like? What would it mean to have a metaphysical science? I mean, I mean, the basic element, you'd have to have a claim that something is true. You'd have to have a way to verify it. And you, oh, to give an example, I mean, Plato kind of talked about this kind of thing. Let's go into epistemology for a second. Like, how do you know you know? Or how do you know that you know that you know? So, you know, you're dreaming. You're having a dream, and then you wake up. Now, when you wake up, let's say in a second or two, once you sort of clear your head, 
you conclude that that was a dream. And that dream was less real than what I'm doing right now. So let's say in your dream you thought you, you dreamt you were in Paris and you wake up and you're in Chapel Hill. So you conclude that I'm really in Chapel Hill, not in Paris, and the dream was somehow illusory. So how do you make that judgment? On what basis do you conclude that two states of consciousness, both of which, at the time you experienced them, totally persuaded you that this is real, and yet you conclude this state of consciousness <coughs> is actually somehow more real than my dream state? So if you ask that simple question, you know, can you prove it? Can you prove that this experience right now is more real than, let's say, your dream last night or the last time you dreamt? And so ultimately, I mean, if you had to say, like, well, on what basis, how do you justify your conclusion, it would have to be something like the quality of the experience. There's something about the nature of this experience which is self-evidently more real. Self-evident is a very important term in philosophy. It means something proves itself, and therefore you can't be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs to establish it. Right? So, so what I'm saying is, in, in what we call Krishna consciousness, or spiritual consciousness, or, you know, the, the term doesn't matter. Um, when you experience it, when you experience spiritual consciousness, you understand it is a higher, more real, perception of everything in exactly the same way that you perceive that your waking consciousness is more real and accurate and objective than your dream consciousness. And so, just like it would be silly if I say, you can't prove to me that, I mean, or you can't prove to yourself, it's just some things are self-evidently true. Some things prove themselves to you so that you cannot sanely, reasonably deny them. Like, for example, that being awake is more real than dreaming. Take empirical science. Scientists can't prove that there's a real world outside their minds. You know, there's a philosophy called solipsism. And if you embrace it, you probably get free money from the government. <laughs> but solipsism is the belief that you can never know anything outside your own mind. You think you know about the world, you think this is Chapel Hill, or you're inside a house, or you're a student, or whatever, but all you really know is what's inside your mind. For all you know, sort of, this is sort of Descartes' example, you're at the under the power of an evil genius that has you in a laboratory somewhere, and you're just like a brain in a bottle, and, and your brain's being manipulated. So what I mean to say is that we cannot... There have, there have to be the same rules of the game. You can't, you know, for both teams, you can't move the goalpost, so to speak, you know, when the other team has the ball. And so, scientists cannot possibly prove that there's a real world outside their minds because empirical science is based on the assumption there is. I don't want to get too technical here, but, but basically... If they said, of course there's a real world, because look, I mean, here's a real magazine. But this is a real magazine only if there's a real world. That's called circular reasoning. You give, you're trying to prove something, but you give the thing you're trying to prove as evidence of itself. So it's called circular reasoning. So, but to scientists and almost everybody else, it's self-evident. It's just obviously true that there's a real world outside our minds. And it's 
self-evidently true that our awake state is more real than our dream state. And in exactly the same way, it's self-evidently true when you actually come to spiritual consciousness that this is a higher state of consciousness. And so we can't demand of people making these spiritual claims greater a greater burden of proof than we demand of ourselves in empirical science or just in normal consciousness. And clearly, if we do find in the world that most of the human beings that ever lived on Earth uh, believe there is something beyond dead matter, there is some kind of divine power. I mean, it doesn't even matter for the sake of argument, you know, what they thought it was. You know, goddess, a god, many gods, many goddesses, whatever. But most of the human beings that ever lived felt they were justified in concluding, felt they knew that there is something beyond the physical. There's some kind of divine power in the universe which is necessary to explain the universe. And so, it's just like most people feel there's a real world out there. And so, if we say that... Okay, I'll get you one second. <laughs> but, no, it's good. He's, he's thinking. If we... <clears throat> If we say that the fact that most of the people that ever lived, the fact that they concluded that they had good reason to think that there's some spiritual or divine or whatever you want to call it, mystic thing, beyond the ordinary physical. If you say, well, that doesn't prove anything, well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Then the fact that most people believe there's a real world outside our mind, that doesn't prove anything any, either. Or the fact that almost everyone believes that waking consciousness is more real than dreams. That does, in other words, how can we say that when you get almost everybody believing something or feeling they're experiencing something, it, it means nothing? How can that mean nothing? If it means nothing, then nothing means anything. And it's just basically we're all nuts. That's <laughs> why so I think we're not all crazy, and it is significant that most human beings that ever lived had that idea. I mean, what it means ultimately, we can talk about, but it, it's not meaningless. That's my point. It's not meaningless. Yes? Well, I guess you sort of answered my question, so I'll move on to another question that you caused me to think about. Why aren't we all nuts, in your estimation? Why aren't we all nuts? <laughs> I can't say we're all not nuts. I mean, I think everyone here is okay, but <laughs> looking at the way American politics is going, I'm... Yeah, so... Well, what, what prevents the conviction of a spiritual... The conviction of, like, that there is a spiritual consciousness or dimension not illusory, besides the fact that we all believe it? What prevents it? What prevents it from being illusory? Oh, well, I, I see. Um... I would say that those who... I'm not talking about religious fanaticism here, which I'm really allergic to, personally. Based on any type of fanaticism, whether religious or political, whatever, just based on my life experiences and where I've gone and what I've seen, I'm really I can't take that stuff. Religious or political. But if we're talking about a general, non-fanatical, non-sectarian idea, I would say that... Those who come to spiritual consciousness, you know, by this or that path, and, and the symptoms. In other words, when, when they come to spiritual consciousness, they become kinder, they become more compassionate, they become, they don't become more fanatical. People, I mean, if there's a tradition, it could be anything, it could be a Hindu, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, anything, it doesn't matter what it is. But if the more people, so to speak, become religious, the less tolerant they become, the less they can identify the, 
with other people, the less empathy, the less universal empathy they have. And to me, I hate to use this cliche, but it's kind of like religious but not spiritual. So, people who come to spiritual consciousness in any tradition, or in no tradition, just by their own lights or whatever, um, the experience they're having satisfies every conceivable requirement, epistemological requirement, for being real. And so we you know, make a list for the requirements. Just like you know there's a real world outside yourself, you know you have a family, you know who they are, you can find your memory, you, you assume that you're not just... You know, like, like for example, to give an example of something which is totally non-empirical, you could never prove, yesterday, I don't mean the song with the Beatles, <laughs> it's a really nice song, but, you know, yesterday, because it, it, really, it vanished. You could say, well, we have newspapers from yesterday, well, someone put it in, and so on and so forth. So ultimately, in the real world, you know, even philosophers, they have this expression because you can philosophize yourself into an insane asylum. And so ultimately they have this um, expression that, you know, if it, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a duck. There has to be some common sense. William James, great American psychologist, one of the pioneers of American psychology, William James, made this very interesting claim because he's famous for that book, The Variety of Religious Experiences, and he, you know, studied all kinds of things. But ultimately said there are certain very deep structures in the human mind with which I'm not going to mess. I'm not going to tamper. It's like, because really, you're, you can really kind of um, unravel yourself. And if something leads to insanity and just complete madness, it's probably not the way to get knowledge. And so even William James, who thought about something, I mean, yeah, William James, his brother is Henry, and we won't talk about Henry. But even William James, he, um, he said there's certain very deep structures and deep things in the human consciousness that I personally am not going to mess with. And um, so if anything is real, then these spiritual facts are real. And they're not sectarian. The fact, I mean, to give one a simple example, um, which is found in the Bhagavad Gita. And that is that, based on our deepest intuition, based on our deepest experience of ourselves, we cannot possibly be our bodies. We must be some conscious being within our body. And, and the example Krishna gives in the Gita is that all of us have experienced infancy, you know, whatever you have, or you know, you're a little kid, and then you know, child, and then adolescent, and you become an adult, and want your money back, but... <laughs> so we've experienced all these different ages, and yet we're the same person. We've obviously changed our mind about so many things. Our body has obviously changed in so many ways. But there is, at the deepest level, a reality you cannot get around. It's still you. When you were two years old, it was you. When you were five, it was you. When you were seven, nine, thirteen... Why am I only using odd numbers? <laughs> Psychological explanation. But anyway, you were 14. So, but the, so the fact that you were in many different bodies. Because you actually reincarnated. Incarnate means flesh. And, and, you know, so you literally reincarnated just divide your age by seven. And that's how many times you've already reincarnated. So, so that person cannot just be 
divisible bodies. It's just logically impossible. Yes. What? How do you feel about the idea that like the core of yourself is actually just the continuum of experience reinforcing itself into the sense of self? Uh, I think that's backwards. Why? Why? Because I think at the deepest level, I experience myself as an individual, unique center of consciousness with volition, free will. <coughs> and so I think to say that, okay, there's no self, it's just sort of this, you know, parade of experiences that, that somehow, first of all, why would a non-self just having this stream of consciousness literally, like, invent the idea of a self? It's like, why would they do that? It's much more plausible that a person would have these experiences. And to me, if freedom has any value, if justice has any value, they must rest on a reality where we really are a person. Because if you're just a stream of experiences, then so if I you know, make the stream go this way instead of that way, if I divert the stream, so what? I mean, the whole... At the deepest level, we know that some things are right and wrong. When we see flagrant injustice, when we see cruelty, we see, you know, it, it, it bothers us at, the, us, us at the deepest level. Because at the deepest level, we know that we're people, we're persons. And even the animals, I mean, they're persons too. So, so, yeah, it just goes against our deepest experience of ourselves. It's just kind of like this theoretical... Uh, idea that you try to convince yourself of rather than what you really experience about yourself, which is your person. Yes? So does that mean the self is only like malleable up until a certain point? Good question. That's what you get when you go to the university. Um, malleable? Okay, tell me more about what you mean by malleable. Like, if the self was, if the self is just something that isn't just Okay. Yeah, 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 that's very good. Um, okay. From this point of view that I'm representing here, um, everything you could ever want to be is who you really are. In other words, the real you, not just this covering, but the real you, for example, is unlimitedly beautiful and wise, and you live forever. And if you think about it, everything you could ever want for yourself, let's say your nobler side, I mean, some things we want, we shouldn't want. I mean, we shouldn't want to exploit other people, we shouldn't want to, and so on and so forth. But in terms of our noblest <coughs> desires, or yearnings, or ambitions, what we would want, you know, all the desires that come from our wisdom, and not our selfishness, but that's all true. So in a sense, when you want to be beautiful, when you want to be happy, when you want to be wise, when you want to go on existing and not die, you're really trying to get back to your real self. And that's why we're always pulled to that, because that's who we really are. But if we take the covering, the body to be the self, then we're then we're denying our own highest nature. But I mean, the fact that you now, like you have a body, and you you know you can talk and walk and, and everything, and, and and so, but you, 
they say that face is the index of the mind. I mean, the goodness that comes from you, or the intelligence that comes from you, that's really you. It's like, for example, um, take a street light, red, yellow, green. Uh, behind, behind the red, yellow, and green coverings, is the same white light. It's the same white light, but when it goes through that filter, it comes out as red, yellow, green light. So the same way, let's say, when I have a child body, my pure consciousness coming through that filter of a child's body comes out as child consciousness, or then adolescent consciousness. My gosh, what are you going to back then? And so, and so now, let's say, or, or, or let's say someone has, you know, a... Uh, a white body, or a black body, or this body, or that body, or you know, Chinese body, or a Oaxacan body, or a German body, or whatever. It's really just pure consciousness. I mean, the soul isn't German, or Nigerian, or black, or white, or Native American, or anything. The soul is, just, is, is a pure being, a pure consciousness. But when that consciousness comes through the filter of a body, it comes out of that kind of consciousness. And people who are really out of touch with this, that self, that soul, uh, act unkindly toward people with other kinds of bodies. And, which is an amazing example of hypocrisy. For someone to claim to be religious, and yet to discriminate in any way against anyone because of the type of body they have. Because if you know anything about spiritual things, you should know that everyone is a pure soul. So, yeah, so the real you is everything you'd ever want to be. I mean, personally, I'm not giving up my freedom as an individual. What I say is suicide is not healthy, whether it's physical or philosophical. And the most valuable thing we could ever have is that we are free, conscious beings. Every one of us. And why throw that away in the name of, you know, meditation or why throw away something of infinite value, the greatest thing you could ever have? To be a free, individual, thinking, conscious, beautiful person. Yes? So, um, I, I don't want to get uh, too technical here, but I'm really interested in unpacking this notion of uh, ultimate truth, mm -hmm. uh, which you touched on. And it seems like um, <clears throat> it has a strong connection to uh, this concept that you brought up of a it's like a self-proving proposition, or like, like in logic they're called tautologies. So like, for example, like a tautology is true no matter the truth assignments of the variables in a proposition. So, so like ultimate truth uh, with regards to reality would be like that thing that would be true no matter reality's contents, or, or, the, you know, or the truth assignments of uh, whatever things you say are, might be in reality. So. Um, so, and it seems like that um, if you were to, if, say, say an ultimate truth were real uh, with regards to reality, like it seems like you would sort of start the journey towards that ultimate truth by starting with a sort of a tautological proposition regarding reality. Well, give an example. Like, for instance, reality contains all and only that which is real. That's like just self-containment. Yeah, very interesting. Right. Um, okay, should I respond to that? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very interesting what you said. Um, first of all, maybe just briefly get into the politics of what you explained. And that is that, uh, as we know, there's a pendulum effect in nature. I mean, that term is first attributed to Galileo. But anyway, there's a pendulum effect. There's a psychological pendulum effect. As Plato talks about the political <coughs> pendulum, obviously long before Galileo, where Plato says that uh, tyranny tends to produce anarchy or, or democracy, and vice versa. So um, there has been a sort of very, um, in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways, a very nasty religious history in the last uh, many centuries. I mean, we can go through the list of inquisitions and crusades, and you know, and, and not only one religion didn't have, didn't have a monopoly in this stuff, but there's, at least in, in the Middle East and, and in Europe, there's been a, uh, a pretty nasty religious history. And uh, the result is that uh, people have turned against ultimate truth claims. Because to claim that something is the absolute truth, the highest truth, it seems like going back to the Middle Ages, and it can only lead to wars and brutality and cruelty and you know, fanaticism and all that. So, my point would be, I mean, if we could you know, go back to Hegel's historical dialectic. I mean, the dialectic is very simple. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. The idea that there's a status quo, the way things are, and then something opposes that, and there's a struggle, and some new reality emerges after the struggle, and that becomes the new status quo. And so, this pendulum effect, where uh, catastrophic ultimate truth claims I mean, for example, in Oxford, the great university town in England, if you go to Oxford, right in the middle of the town, there's this statue, this monument, to three Oxford theology professors who were burned alive at the stake. I mean, that can ruin your whole day. They were burned, they were burned alive at the stake because you had this crazy period in English history, which was sort of unleashed by Henry VIII. Where you have this struggle between, because even after Henry VIII, you know, declared the Church of England, there were times when there was a Catholic monarch. <coughs> and so when there was a Catholic monarch in England, um, everyone had to be Catholic. They, they, uh, and you know, all the prayers had to be in Latin. And, and then if the next monarch by succession was Protestant, you closed all the monasteries, shut you know, all the Catholic churches, and then you couldn't even compose music anymore in Latin. It had to be in English. And so if you study the musical, sacred music history of England, so, to, um, so you have this, um, this struggle, this fanatical struggle, and, and people just finally rejected it. People at a certain point... Oh, I was going to talk about the history of science and religion. The, uh, so I can just complete that. And I, I'm going to get to your point. It's a really good point. And I apologize for taking the scenic route here. <laughs> We're definitely not on the interstate here. We're on a country road. But <laughs> okay, I'll try this very quickly. If you look at the Renaissance, the rebirth, the Renaissance, the rebirth is of what? It's a rebirth of pagan culture. Because 
people, let's say, starting in the 1300s, like Plutarch and, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, not Plutarch, Petrarch, and Dante, they said, oh my God, you know, this, there used to be this great civilization in Europe, this sophisticated Greco-Roman civilization. Now, we're trapped inside this Monty Python movie. <laughs> and, and so the Europeans that began to rediscover their own original culture and how sophisticated it was and how beautiful it was in some ways. And so they're the ones. It was the first Renaissance people themselves that coined the term Dark Ages. Talking about the world they were born into. And um, and Middle Ages, you know, why? what's the middle of what? The middle between a very advanced classical civilization and its resurgence of pagan civilization. So, you know, anyway, <coughs> it is a fascinating topic. It was very controversial in many ways. Obviously, you know, the kingdom of Christ on earth, which was Europe. So, so basically what happened, we know that there was a Protestant Reformation, Luther, because the, the corruption of the Catholic Church, contrary to popular opinion, was the trigger of the Reformation. It was only the trigger. It, it, it wasn't really where the Reformation went. Because, um, I mean, the church started to clean up its act, the Catholic Church, and so that was just the trigger. Really, I think, the way to understand the Protestant Reformation is a backlash, a re an allergic reaction to uh, the Renaissance. Because, and I'll explain why I mean that, because the Renaissance was actually a rebirth of Southern European culture. You know, Italy and, 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 and Greece and everything. So the North Europeans, like Luther, they couldn't relate to it. Wasn't there a human the Renaissance? Yeah, yeah, there, there were all kinds of things going on. But So Luther, for example, Martin Luther, some of his slogans, every revolution needs slogans, were things like, in Latin, sola fede, which means only faith, and sola scriptura, only scripture. What did he mean? He meant no philosophy, no science. So if you look at the... And so before that, religion and science were actually sort of partners, trying to get knowledge of different aspects. That's what we got off of this metaphysical thing, physics. They're just trying to get to understand different aspects of reality. For example, Galileo. The trial of Galileo is really only understandable in the aftermath of, of the Reformation because the Catholic Church was losing whole countries, not just like losing individuals, they were losing countries. And, and so they were kind of, the, the political center or the religious center was pulled over to this conservative side because the Protestants were having success and so the Catholics had become more conservative. Before the Reformation, the Catholic Church was actually one of the main patrons of the new science. So what I mean to say is that in the relationship between science and religion in the West, which had gone on for centuries and centuries, the divorce papers were filed by the Church, not by the science. So much so that even, let's say, decades after Newton, who just changed everything, I mean, Newton was, I mean, before Newton, basically, people in Europe really believed they lived in Middle Earth, as in the Hobbit. Men, really, I mean, Europeans really thought they lived in Middle Earth. There were elves, there were, you know, trolls under bridges. I mean, they really lived in a world like that. And Newton changed everything. But even after Newton, um, you still had some of the learned college professors writing treatises on the best way to identify the true witch. So you don't kill the, you know, a non 
And, and they were still teaching Ptolemaic astronomy. This is after Newton, decades after Newton, they're still teaching this completely anachronistic astronomy of Ptolemy. And the reason in the 18th century that the intellectuals uh, had all these salons, like in Paris, you know, London, they had all these intellectual salons, because the best minds of Europe could not get jobs in universities. Because they were still controlled by the church. And so, of course, ultimately then, science advanced, and learning advanced, and, and the tables were turned, and then the uh, secularists, you know, they got their vengeance. They kicked all the religious people out of the universities. So that it became, like, like if you dare to, you know, espouse anything that smacks of wisdom or religion or whatever, you know, you're thrown out. And so, so what I'm saying is, now, according to the historical dialectic, it's time to move on. We've had the thesis, which is fanatical religion. We've had the antithesis, which is truly fanatical materialism especially in universities. And now we need to move on to the synthesis, which is to reestablish the unity of knowledge. That's really what needs to be done now, to reestablish the unity of knowledge so that people that pursue physical and metaphysical knowledge can do so as partners, and not as enemies. So, getting back to your point now. Sorry. <laughs> so, getting back to your point about ultimate... So, I'm saying sort of like, like the Western intellectual allergy that allergic reaction to ultimate truth claims, I think needs, it, it can be explained more historically and psychologically than philosophically. Because the notion that there's an absolute truth and ultimate truth is not intrinsically stupid, in fact, <coughs> it's almost intrinsically required, if you understand philosophy. Yeah. And so, as far as what it would look like, or you say like starting out with certain tautologies and so yeah. on, um, well, I'll tell you what, I mean, what you said is, is good. I'm going to come from a different angle and see if we can meet in the middle somewhere. And that is, uh, from the, the Sanskrit, Sanskrit tradition or the Bhagavad Gita, so, you know, what does it mean to make an ultimate truth claim? Or a claim of an absolute truth? Clearly, it means something which is true everywhere and at all times. For example, we're in Chapel Hill. That's true now, but maybe a thousand years from now, I mean, probably won't be at Chapel Hill. And so it won't be true that we're in Chapel Hill. It may be true that we're in the place that used to be Chapel Hill, but it's not presently true that we're in Chapel Hill. And, but something which is true everywhere, at all times, is an absolute truth. And so, uh, in the case of a God, for God to be an absolute truth, and by the way, there are many conceptions of God in which God is not an absolute truth. For example, Gnostic traditions, or the Aztec theology. I mean, these dualistic visions of the world where there's a force of good, there's a force of evil, and they're really fighting. It's like, you know, the force of good and evil are in the sort of the cosmic octagon, you know, mixed martial arts, and um, they're just fighting it out. And so God is not an absolute truth. God is just the force of good fighting against a force of evil that God doesn't really ultimately control. So, the conception of God is not necessarily the idea of an absolute truth. The conception of an absolute truth, of God as an absolute truth, is that ultimately there's one supreme source of everything. There's one supreme source of everything, and so God is not merely the ruler, but he's even like the, uh, like the material cause of everything, to use Aristotle's term. In the sense that everything that exists, like matter and spirit, emanate from God and ultimately return to God, and, um, and God is 
as sometimes I remember at UCLA, my philosophy religion professor said, triple O God, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent. All good. And so, um, so that, that would be the absolute truth. Source of everything, ultimate power over everything, omniscient, and so on and so forth. So, like, it's, by definition, this God would contain everything, including itself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, so that's my point. Yeah, that's explicitly said in the Gita. Arjuna, in the Bhagavad Gita, says to Krishna, Sarvam Samat Noshi, Tatosi Sarvam. You include everything, you encompass mm-hmm. everything, and therefore you are everything. So it seems like any everything that can be uh, validly uh, deduced from that proposition would fall under the category of absolute truth. Very interesting. Let me think about that for a second. That's, that's a really interesting point. Um, I would say yes. That's yes. just how yeah. yeah, yeah, well, I'm saying that, that's true, but I would put certain uh, conditions on that. And there was, that's true to the extent that we're talking about fundamental principles. For example... You mean logic? Well, for example, like, like for example, if you say Chapel Hill is the University City of North Carolina, mm-hmm. And, I mean, would that be an absolute truth according to what you said? No, because it's not true under all contexts. Okay, we agree. Yeah. 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 I mean, like... And we both play keyboard also. (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah, I think we agree. We're just kind of coming from different uh, types of language. Yeah. 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 So I guess this is a question that's natural to ask when people ask me to write any thoughts here. Yes. Well, the first part of the question, I think, is like, you know, if God is omnibenevolent, then why does suffering exist? Yes. If God is omnibenevolent, does that mean that good and bad, good people don't actually exist? You got a really smart crowd. Go fish and eat. Um, <laughs> Causes the least possible discomfort and pain to you. 
My follow-up question to that is, yeah. if God is also omnipotent, couldn't he just change the laws of the universe such that there's no minimal harm necessary to achieve the good? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's good. I feel like saying you, I'm not always said your name. You'd be a good lawyer. Um, <laughs> did you want to jump in? Yeah, um, when we come across such questions as, can God do this, can God do that to rise about the greatest good? It tends to ask the question, what is good? Sure. Okay. And many yeah. people have different perspectives of what good is. Um, okay, can I put that next in line? Because it's a really good question. I mean, it's an excellent oh, question. Oh, it's just a point being made, not a question at all. No, oh, yeah, point. Yeah, but it's, a, it's an excellent point that should be addressed, but... If I could just get this thing first, because, yeah, we are very smart, and these are really excellent points, and so that deserve to be addressed. So, first of all, your point, which, of course, is called theodicy, you know, is there justice in God or the problem of evil? And so, in philosophy, and, you know, I'm a little rusty, so let me know if, I, uh, if I'm too rusty on some of these points, but in philosophy, certain things are logically true. Like, for example, the fact that um, you can't have a square circle. And so you don't have to look around to see if there are any square circles. It's not an empirical question. If you know what the word square means, if you know what the word circle means, you know there's no such thing as a square circle. And so the question of can God, as you put it, you know, make the world in such a way that there is no even minimum pain necessary to bring about the good, and, uh, and here's the real issue when we discuss the problem of evil. Basically, you know, if, if God knows our suffering, if God knows everything, He knows our suffering in the world. If He is all good, He wants to end the suffering. If He's all powerful, He can end the suffering. But the suffering doesn't end. So how could there be a God that knows everything, is all good and all powerful? That's the basic argument. Sure. And so. Uh, I think the the real point that has to be considered that kind of um, refutes that argument is the issue of our free will. The fact that we actually have free will. And that our life would have no meaning without that free will. I mean, I mean imagine some like horrific scenario where someone is, you know, lobotomized, given some terrible brain operation they literally have no power to, to do anything, to choose anything. They lose their free will. I mean, it would you know, be a horrible state, a nightmare, state to be in. And so, uh, we do have free will. And what? What's that? Why do we have free will? Because free will is good. Yeah, I, I think I'm choosing to do this right now. And so, well, I mean, because if free will doesn't exist, then whoever says it doesn't exist, doesn't like Leah, they're just somehow being forced to say it. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that you can discover a causal chain, a deterministic causal chain, so that, you know, if you know the initial set of conditions, you can explain everything everyone does without reference to free will, I think is absurd, and, and no one's ever come remotely close to doing that. And that's why, in fact, psychology is not, will never become a hard science. I mean, certain aspects of it, you could say, certain physiological issues, sure. 
you know, but then we're kind of getting into physiology or neurology. But psychology as such is not, will never become a hard science like physics for the simple reason that we have free will. But anyway, so we do have free will and our existence would be meaningless without it. That's what makes us worth it, what, what makes life worth living. Did, you, did any of you see that movie, Bruce Almighty? Yes. Okay, so that'll say a lot of time. Yeah, so um, the idea that, to me, the idea that God could uh, honor your free will, honor your free will, facilitate it, and, and preserve it, at the same time, you could never do harm to yourself, to me, is something like a square circle. And so, um, of course, in actually most Asian traditions like Buddhism, Jainism, and Hinduism, they have this uh, notion of, of karma. And when you put karma in there, <coughs> not that I was just born for the first time now, so if we're all born for the first time, obviously someone has a great birth, someone has a terrible birth, uh, you can't, the problem with evil can never be resolved, at least not rationally. In fact, the impossibility of resolving the problem of evil in a, in, in, a, in a theology where God just creates us from nothing, which, you know, Parmenides would really scream about, is um, it led very intelligent Christians, uh, people like, uh, you know, like Pascal, very, very, you know, really, really intelligent people, to a position called fideism, which, uh, fide, of course, faith, faith. The idea that God wants to humble us because we are vain and proud. And one of the things we become most proud of is our intelligence as human beings. And therefore, God has intentionally given the world an irrational revelation so that uh, it will humble them and realize their faith, their, their, their human intelligence just isn't going to do the job. That's a very dangerous position, actually. I mean, I mean, Pascal, one of the greatest scientists of the 17th century, a mathematician, and at the end of his life, he became, he became a monk in southern France because he thought, well, I better save my soul, <laughs> you know, rather than kind of being intellectually consistent. So, but it's very dangerous because let's say an act of terrorism. You have nothing to say to the terrorist because the terrorist can just say, I'm a fideist. And, you know, this may seem irrational to you, but it's God's will. So I, I think separating reason, <coughs> reason from revelation is extremely dangerous. Something I would never do. And, and by that, I don't mean that by unaided human reason you can understand every spiritual truth. But that if someone claims to offer you revelation, the revelation has to be reasonable. It has to be consistent with your moral and, you would say, philosophical expectations about God. So therefore, um, in thought systems in which there's karma, there's reincarnation, this is not your first life, and that there is, you know, you could have, at least without internal contradiction in the theory, you could have caused your own present suffering. Um, it's a different ballgame, you know, it's a, it's a different... In a system where we are born ex nihilo, you know, from nothing, this is our first birth, it's hopeless. I mean, the problem of evil wins every time. 
great idea. I mean, if I was God, you know, Bruce Almighty, I think I'd probably create one system of karma. The simple reason that if if mercy, if kindness is a virtue, if kindness is a virtue, and God is infinitely kind, then God will give us unlimited opportunities to become enlightened. I mean, why, how could, how could an infinitely merciful God tell people, okay, you've got 20 years and the clock is moving now. You know, you got, and if you don't, if you don't like figure it all out and choose the right religion and, 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 and purify your soul and everything within this only very limited time span, then you are so toast. <laughs> so, who was it? Uh, John Stuart Mill, I think, once said that how can I believe in a God who's morally inferior to good human beings? <laughs> so, the idea of karma, first of all, it's sort of cosmic sensitivity training. I mean, think about it. It's like whatever I put out into the universe, it just bounces back to me. And so it's like the Bob Dylan song. How does it feel? <laughs> and once upon a time, you just find all that. Actually, I remember when I first heard that song. I was a teenager. I was cruising Sunset Strip in L.A., you know, listening to the radio with my friends. And that song came out. And I just knew, wow, there's something about this song. And then... It's funny, because back then, all the young guys went out and bought guitars, because they thought, you don't need a good voice to be a rock and roll star. Because, <laughs> 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 okay, so, well, you know, he's a rock and roll star, he's got all these girls after him, so you don't need a good voice. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, it's just, you know, you know how it feels. Well, the next question is, like, why create? Why create? Okay, let me have to get to you. I have a very simple answer. Just because of the fact that if like God exists in the first place, that means that He would have had there would have been a moment of self-creation mm -hmm. necessarily involved, which would include everything else. That's right. Well. That's very so it's just it has to be the case. Well, because okay, let's take it this angle. You know, Parmenides. Yeah. I mean, it's really really interesting character. Parmenides is a pre-Socratic philosopher. Had a lot of influence on Plato, and he said that everything that exists has always existed. Because Parmenides made a very interesting statement. I think. He said, he said, if you if the word nothing, the word nothing, is as much a word as the word something. It's just a word. It exists as a positive, real thing. You know, as a, a positive item of language, and yet there. It doesn't refer to anything. Like if I say apple, it refers to something. If I say guitar, it refers to something. If I say Bill or John or Mary or you know, it refers to something or Ecuador. But when you say nothing, it doesn't refer to anything. And yet, because it's a word, it's like exists as a word. When you say everything came from nothing, ex nihilo, it's actually a misuse of language because there's no such such thing as nothing to come from. Right. And he also said that there's there's nothing to go into. You can't say it just went into nothingness because there isn't this thing. And so Parmenides said that whatever exists has always existed, which is also what Krishna says in the Gita. Krishna says there's basically two energies in the universe. There's matter and there's consciousness. And that they both always existed. The difference being that matter can be transmuted, you know, transmogrified. See, that shows you're going to call it. <laughs> 
<laughs> matter can be transformed different shapes, like for example, anything. You know, solids, liquids, fires, matter. And that's really the Buddhist point. That's really what I mean when, when you talk about the Buddhist shunyata, nothingness. What they're really talking about is that if you look at any phenomenon, any visible or perceptible object, physical object in the universe, like you said, the table, the table is actually constantly in motion. Because at every moment, you know, it's, it's changing over time. So there is no absolutely fixed object, which is a table, or a human body, or a pomegranate, or anything. Well, it also applies to mental occurrences, too. Well, in that, like, I mean, thoughts are processes, emotions are processes that are... They're always moving. Yeah. Well, Heraclitus, who, by the way, is around the time of Buddha, and he's famous for saying in Greece that uh, you can never step in the same river twice. And so if you imagine everything in life, like your, your mental states, physical states, is like this stream of, you know, everything's changing. There's no fixed object. Of course, the real question is, okay, but is there a fixed object which is the soul and is not matter? And that's what Buddha would talk about. Right. He was practical. He didn't, but also, I mean, obviously, once you get the arrow out, I mean, it is interesting, you know, like, is there a soul or not? The fact that he wouldn't talk about it, I think, says a lot. Sometimes when people won't answer a question, it says volumes. Because obviously, you could just say, okay, since you guys are already committed to Buddhism anyway, and you're all practicing, you're all taking the arrow out, we can have a little time out here and talk about ultimately the soul and God, or if they exist or not. So obviously, you can practice Buddhism and take the arrow out and still talk, do a little metaphysics on the side. But the fact that he refused to do it, I think, says a lot. What do you think about that? That he did not want to deny God and the soul. Because he could have easily done it in one sentence. He didn't. He never did. So, um, so get back. And, and you had that point about. I'm sorry, what was your point? What is the good? What is good? Okay. Should I take a shot at it? Yeah. You want to take a shot? No. Okay. So it's, uh, it's one of those things like um, kind of how you're talking about how Buddha didn't answer. What is God? What is the soul? Maybe he didn't answer because it's a. It's a a virtue that the person needs to reach on I think, no, well, I will take a shot at it. I, I think we can give a reasonable explanation of good. And so, um, in a sense, we could use it as uh, both as both the process and, and the, the goal of the process, in the sense that the process is good, <coughs> leads to the good. So what would be a good state? Um, there's there's a, a term in Sanskrit, Satchitananda, which basically means existence in the sense of eternal existence. Just existing and always existing. And then Chit means consciousness, knowledge, awareness. And um, Ananda, happiness or bliss. So I would say that something which ultimately promotes existence. Like, for example, medicine that saves your life. Or, you know, firefighters that save the families in the burning house. Something which promotes existence, preserves existence, and which leads to significant knowledge. Not, not the kind of knowledge you need to win a trivia contest. You need to know about the important things of life, like who am I, and what is the world, what's the purpose of life, and all that. And, and real happiness. And by real happiness, I mean 
Um, happiness, first of all, which is not based on doing bad things, like it makes me happy to beat up other people, or it makes me happy to rip people off, not pay contractors, drive them out of business so I make more money. <laughs> you know? So, by real happiness, I mean happiness, if existence is, is, is a goal, and wisdom is a goal, and happiness is a goal, the real happiness would be an act or a state or, or something which actually promotes all those positive things for myself and others to the extent that it impacts them. How do you define existence? Uh, oh my God, Heidegger, is this the reincarnation of Heidegger? <laughs> so, so because reality is ultimately self-contained, existence has to be self-defined. And that means that it's simply defined within the system. Yeah. Although, to say that it's defined within the system, uh, we don't want to stray into a type of subjectivism, say like it's all just subjective. In other words, there can be objective, because when you have an absolute truth... Well, we've already talked about absolute yeah. truth. Yeah, but then, but then you have objective facts of the matter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So, I think that, uh, I think we can talk about the good. In the sense that something which promotes all those things which I think we reason, to which we reasonably assign positive value. Without, like, horrible, unintended consequences. Those are always good. <laughs> <laughs> also, if there is a God and he uh, sort of um, evolves in the universe uh, teleologically, teleologically and, and has a will, you know, that would ultimately uh, serve as good. Like, that would be what would be good. Yeah. That would answer the question. God is what his purpose is to be good. I mean, that's what would be defining good. Yes. Okay. Well, teleology, for those who uh, are rusty on your philosophical Greek, telos in Greek means a purpose or an end. And so teleological, teleology, at, as in a sense of a philosophical position, can often mean the idea that there are objective purposes. So the question, you know, why was I born, actually has an objective answer. And, of course, you know, we can create purposes for ourselves. Like you can say, like, I'm going to go to the malt shop and listen to 1950s music or something. And so you just sort of create that purpose for yourself. Or you can say, like, you know, you can create for yourself any purpose, but it's just something you've created. And you can decide, okay, I no longer want to do that, so it's not a purpose anymore. So teleology is the idea that whether you know it or not, whether you will it or not, there is an objective purpose to your life. There's really an objective reason why you were born. And there's an objective reason why the universe exists. Which is, of course, our position. And aren't there some universal truths? I mean, some things, good is not always relative. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's what I was kind of thinking. Um, and also about reincarnation and karma, I was thinking too that some people would think, well, why couldn't we um, ourselves like change that or something? But if we remembered all of our past lives, we'd probably kind of go crazy. <laughs> so I guess... Well, if you imagine, it would be an unimagined un level of schizophrenia. It would be an unimagined level of schizophrenia.
And then I went to Europe and I just thought it was a much more quaint historical version of the same materialism. <laughs> and so finally I had this, I guess they say epiphany, I had this moment. I was in a, I was in a um, train coming back, I was coming back to North Africa. I went back to Malaga, I was taking a train back to Madrid to catch a train to Paris. And um, I just made a formal decision in, in my life. I was keeping a journal, I was a writer. And, and I made a decision that I have to find out what God is, what the, you know, if there is an absolute truth, I have to find that out. And I wrote it down, and I, I, I just made a vow that when I got back, I had to stay in school because of Vietnam War. You know, dropping out was not an option. And so, um, and when I got back to Berkeley, I kept my vow to myself. And I just, every, I, I was listening to all kinds of preachers, and I, I actually assumed that God was present in many places. <coughs> I was not looking for the one true religion. Because I, I could see there are many sincere people in many different traditions, and that more or less God was with them to some, you know, to some extent. So I wasn't looking for the one true religion, and I was just looking for the, the best possible understanding of God. And um, so, anyway, I you know, had all these experiences, and, and, uh, and then I went home to, for the summer, to L.A., I was actually living in Beverly Hills, so I went home for the summer, my family, and um, I got a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, the book which I recently translated, and, uh, you know, mention my name and get 10% knocked off your copy. So, <laughs> anyway, so I, <laughs> this is America, you know. <laughs> so, so when I read the Bhagavad Gita, it, um, I was persuaded. The way I was, just the way I was, or I am, wired, I wasn't just looking for a warm, fuzzy experience, or I had lots of friends, and I, I wasn't lonely, I wasn't looking for a warm community. I was just looking for knowledge. And, uh... Like I said, I wasn't looking for the one true religion because I knew that God was in many places. And so when I read the Bhagavad Gita, especially, and this may sound funny, because it may sound like a little intellectual, but what really closed the deal for me, so to speak, like in Cardinals, you know, if you, you know, we'll throw in the floor mats if you drive this alcohol today, but what really convinced me was um, the ontology, in the sense of philosophy of existence, because I've been exposed, exposed to monism. Everything's just one. Like it's all just one. Which ultimately cannot be absolutely true because there are different colors and different shapes and different people and different words and different, you know, like in music. I mean, there's harmony and melody because there are different notes and pitches and tones. And, and yet, and some people say we're just different from God. There's this, you know, yawning chasm. We're just so different from God. And so just being totally separate from the absolute truth was not satisfying. And just saying it's all exactly identical seemed not true. And then the idea that we're one with God, we're one with God because we're, we, the quality of our consciousness, our existence, is ultimately the same as God. But we're tiny, and God is infinite. And yet we're one with God. We're, we're like small gods. And There was that, and then there was... The fact that the, the people I saw practicing bhakti yoga were not hypocrites. That was a big deal for me. Because I had met a lot of people who were preaching this and preaching that. And I would listen to everyone respectfully and patiently. 
But I saw that a lot of people who were preaching didn't really seem to have a spiritual life. They kind of seemed to be like me, except they preached. <laughs> and I knew I wasn't spiritual. So, so I, I, um, when I saw a community, which was in Los Angeles, the Christian community in Los Angeles, and I could see they were actually practicing a disciplined spiritual life. So it was philosophy and practice that really were important to me. I mean, because, I, because to me it was a process. I didn't just want to believe something. I wanted to realize, I, I didn't want a doctrine. I wasn't looking for a doctrine. I was looking for higher consciousness. Because in those days, all about conscious, you know, stay high forever. And everyone was talking about consciousness. And so I wanted to be conscious of the truth, not just believe in it as a doctrine. I, wa I wanted to actually experience it, and not just experience it temporarily, like, like a drug-induced experience, but actually permanently in a higher state of consciousness, live there in that higher truth. And um, as I began to dabble in bhakti yoga, um, I saw that there was a proportional, powerful improvement in my consciousness as I actually got into it. And so I was convinced philosophy is there. It's actually a... It's, it's a plausible, coherent roadmap to reality and that there actually are people who are practicing it authentically and that the more I practice it, the better my consciousness is. And so I thought, well, that's nice. I'm slumped into the Hare Krishna movement. So, <laughs> I really was not attracted to the idea of, you know, joining something <coughs> living in, a, in sort of like in a regulated community, which I ended up doing for a while. But, um, and, and here I am. So, you know, I have my own life, and I, um, but it all worked. I think that's it. I, I, wanted, I wanted to be in higher consciousness, not just believe in a doctrine, and not be a hypocrite. And that's, you know what I mean? Not be like the same person I was, but not I have a new doctrine. <laughs> I hope that's answered your question. Yeah. <laughs> of course, since I was a kid, I always dreamed that someday when I grow up, I'm going to sell incense on the street. <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> I must give it kudos that that incense package really um, helped me to come to the bar. Just having that little package with the little address right to this and you get the key to it. So, anything else? I have to say, and I'm not just saying this to uh, flatter you, but this is really an unusually um, impressive group of people. Because I, you know, I, I do this all over the world. It's an honest way to make a living. <laughs> actually I don't actually I have to say that I don't I mean I'm so grateful to God that I have a trust fund <laughs> <laughs> I, I really had great parents I, 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 I mean, I, I'm really deeply deeply grateful that I had really great parents and received a lot of love and financial independence so I don't make a living by preaching or all that stuff. It's actually, I can just do it freely because I think it's the right thing to do. 
But yeah, you are. I mean, this is really great. There's something to be said for, uh, yeah, great universities and people that live around great universities. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate you came and you're a very impressive group. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.